Well, good morning. I'm really excited to be with you today. A couple months ago, we launched a message series on prayer, and it's been one of my favorite series that we've done here at Hope. And um, last week, Eric gave a great message. Uh, If you missed it, uh, you can always go back and listen to it on the podcast. Um, But for the sake of this morning, uh, I'll give you a few of the highlights. Uh, First, he thanked all of you for affirming the need for a next generation pastor and his calling to fill that role. Uh, He also touched on the many amazing things that are going on with our youth, youth and worship ministries. And to me, it feels very much like God has answered a lot of our prayers. And one of the more important things Eric shared is that in the midst of our difficulties, we need each other. And that fits perfectly with where I'm going today. After spending six weeks on I Pray and keeping Eric's message from last week in mind, I thought it'd be kind of cool to spend this week on the topic of We Gather and why Christians have a one another kind of faith. And I'll explain a little bit about that in a moment. And recently, I watched a fascinating and sobering talk from author Andy Crouch, who was editor at Christianity Today for many, many years, and currently serves on the board at Fuller Theological Seminary, where Amber's getting her Master of Divinity degree. And Andy says, we are the most powerful generation in history, but also the loneliest, most anxious, and most depressed. And I posted his talk on my Facebook page if you want to go back and take a look at that. But I saw a survey recently that revealed that young people ages 18 to 24 with the highest rates of social media use reported deep feelings of loneliness compared to those who barely use it. The same researchers discovered that meaningful social interaction is the key to reducing isolation and suggest more face-to-face conversations. And, And that's what young people today need most. Now, there's a little book called The All Better Book, where children are asked how to solve really big problems. One of the questions these kids were asked was, with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? Little kids came up with their answers. This is from an eight-year-old who said, people should find lonely people and ask their name and address and then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. When you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. Okay, not a bad idea. Here's another answer from a nine-year-old named Max. Make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? What happened to you today? Okay, kid's kind of creative. This is from Matt, age eight. We could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. Kind of makes you wonder what little Matt thinks about marriage. (laughs) One more. Sing a song. Stomp your feet. Read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of those. Brian, age eight. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? True story, this past year in the United Kingdom, loneliness has reached such epidemic proportions that the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has literally appointed a Minister for Loneliness for the Cabinet of the United Kingdom. True story. In Japan, lonely deaths among the elderly are so common that there's an actual word for it now. 
It's called Kodokushi. Kodokushi. It gained widespread attention about 15 years ago when a 70-year-old man died and his body was not discovered until he had been dead for three years. His apartment rent was just being deducted from his bank account. And not until the bank account ran out of money did anybody discover his body. And that Andy Crouch video I told you about tipped me off to an article in the Harvard Business Review written by former U.S. general surgeon entitled Work in the Loneliness Epidemic. He writes that the most common pathology he saw as a doctor in the United States was not heart disease or diabetes or cancer. It was loneliness. Just people alone. He says it has more than doubled since the 1980s that well over 40% of Americans report suffering from loneliness at significant levels. And experts believe the actual total is considerably higher because people are just reluctant to say, I feel lonely. More than ever, people live apart from family and apart from friends. People are not relocating for relationships. They do it for opportunity or for money or for jobs or education. Sometimes people relocate their family because God called them to. And Amber and the kids and I know all about that. Loneliness can be fatal. The Surgeon General writes, it's worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it crushes your soul. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. And somebody did. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Not that you out-argue one another, not that you outsmart one another, but that you love one another. Dallas Willard used to say, God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons, with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. With billions of people in the world, Somebody ought to come up with a system where nobody is lonely. And somebody did. And it's called the church. Many people, when they hear the word church, they think of a place that you go to or a service you attend. But Jesus had much more in that in mind. Not a biological family, but a spiritual family. An actual family. One time he was told his mother and his brothers were looking for him. And this was his response. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. A staggering word in an ancient world, which was a very tribal society. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus came to start a family. God's family. And this is a big reason why we made belong a part of our vision statement. That no matter what's going on in your biological family, you still have a place where you can belong. Maybe you've been disappointed with your biological family experience. In fact, how many of you have found your biological family to be a big disappointment? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hands. All right. It's a rhetorical question. Mia, I saw that. 
It was never intended to be your ultimate family. God wants everybody to be a part of his family. He aches for it. Jesus died for that. That's why we're here. That's what we're called to be. And what I want to focus on in the time that we have left in this message is that word belong. The New Testament writers had a phrase they just loved. In fact, it occurs some 59 times in commands in the New Testament. It's the phrase, one another. Amber and I have a friend in Florida who's a wonderful youth pastor. His name is Joel Luz. And one of Joel's teachings I remember most is that Christianity is a one another faith. There's all these statements like, be at peace with one another, honor one another, edify one another, wash one another's feet, submit to one another. Jesus and his followers were serious about this. Admonish one another. Speak truth to one another. Be devoted to one another. This is a new way of life and a new kind of community. It's a family. This will change how people think about church. Often in our day, people will point to a building and say, that's my church. Nobody ever points to a building and says, that's my family. It might be a house where my family lives, but my family is people. Jesus never said, go to church. He said, follow me, and you'll be a part of my family. Love one another. And as the church, the best and the simplest and the clearest way and the best strategy that we have to get people into significant relationships with brothers and sisters um, where they can grow because there are aspects of transformation and spiritual formation that will not happen outside of relationship or outside of community is called small groups. And here at Hope Covenant, we call them hope groups. And what I want to do is walk through some of the one another's that are found in the Bible that happen in relationship. Because you can't practice these. And you can't do this much in a service of this size if you're not in a group. So I want to encourage you to get into a hope group. Get into community. Get into relationship. And if you're already in a hope group, while we walk through these texts or these commandments in the Bible... Just ask, God, how are you calling me to one another at a deeper level with brothers and sisters in my life? The first one another comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is this new commandment that he gives to love. The law of Jesus is a beautiful thing. And the way you fulfill that is carrying each other's burdens. This gets deep into the reality of the spiritual. Spiritual burdens are just as real as physical burdens. So many people around us are carrying the burden of their existence all by themselves. And it's crushing them. Not long ago, I read about a woman who phoned a friend and asked how she was doing. Terrible, she said. My head is splitting. My back and my legs are killing me. The house is a mess. The kids are driving me crazy. I feel so alone. Very sympathetically, the caller said, Now you go and lie down and rest. I'm going to come over right away. I'll fix lunch. I'll clean up the house. I'll take care of the children while you just get some rest. By the way, how's your husband Sam? The woman said, Sam? My husband's name isn't Sam. 
Oh dear, I must have called the wrong number. A long pause. Does this mean you're still not coming over? You know, what's changed in our world is not the burden of health or the burden of being a parent or the burden of addiction or the burden of failure or the burden of loss. Those things have always existed. What's changed is that no one is coming over. We live in a world of unbelievable, amazing, financial, educational, vocational, technological opportunity. But nobody's coming over. Carrie one another's burdens. This doesn't mean if you get into a hope group that you have to be crushed by taking on the responsibility for a bunch of people. In fact, Paul goes right on to say in the same passage, just a couple sentences later, each one should carry their own load. Now, bear each other's burdens, but each should carry their own load. And you might think that Paul is contradicting himself here, but he's not. If you ask, biblical scholars will tell you, Paul is actually using two different words. Load in verse 5, you know, each should carry his own load. It's kind of like in our day, a backpack. It would be something that you're able to do. You can do this on your own. Everybody should be able to carry their own backpack. But the word for burden in verse 2 is a much heavier term in Greek. It's like a boulder. You can't carry a boulder by yourself. We carry them together. We're made to carry them together. And it's an odd thing. But I promise you it's true. This gets deep into the reality of the spiritual life, which is widely overlooked in our day. Somebody is carrying a burden. They get deeply depressed or they have a deep shame. They have a secret that they don't want anybody to know. They have a diagnosis now. Something is happening with one of their kids. There's something going on with them in their anger or their sex life or their finances. And you love them. And they tell you what's going on. Now, as you're with them, you have a burden. Parents know a lot about this. You carry this in a real deep way. But when your kids know that you know and you care for them, their burden becomes lighter. And I don't understand this fully, but I promise you it's true. We're meant to bear each other's burdens. Together, we can carry what nobody can carry alone. You don't need to go to seminary for that. You can do that. We all can do that. The next one another I want to look at is this. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. We love each other as Jesus loved us. We accept each other as Jesus accepted us. How did he accept us? Just the way we are, warts and all. In order to bring praise to God. Because God loves it when we do this. When people get accepted, they say, thank God there's a place like this. God has planted the need for acceptance deep in every soul to be welcomed into the family just because you're you, to belong and to be wanted and to be cherished. 
Part of my work at Friends University is to run an adult certificate program called the Apprentice Experience. I've got a picture here of our community five. And people come from all over the country to gather four times over 18 months. And we study what it means to apprentice Jesus with our whole lives. And not only do I get the privilege of working with friends like James Brian Smith and Jan Johnson and Keith Matthews, but I also get to work with my friend Scott McKnight. Scott is a New Testament scholar and professor at Northern Seminary, and he's located in Chicago. And he's authored dozens of books, uh, some of which are The Jesus Creed, Kingdom Conspiracy, The Blue Parakeet, and my favorite, King Jesus Gospel. And this dude is just wicked smart. Well, when Scott teaches in The Apprentice Experience, he talks about the biblical definition of love. Not phylos, which is brotherly love. Not eros, which is romantic love. But a deeper, more robust kind of love. And this is how he defines biblical love. He says, when you love someone, you make a rugged commitment to be for them, to be with them, unto our wholeness and holiness, and with great affection. And this rugged commitment is a real big deal. It's like you were making a covenant. And covenants to love were made between God and people all throughout the Bible. And we as God's people make covenants to love with each other. And so there's a rugged commitment to be for one another. This means to be an advocate. To stand in the gap and help battle the pains and struggles of this life. Where do we learn how this works? We read in one of John's letters this. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This command to love one another is a part of Jesus' great commandment. And this includes being for one another. And there's also a rugged commitment to be with one another. This means being present, showing up, coming alongside. God is present with us always. And our covenant to love includes our presence with others. And there's a rugged commitment unto our wholeness and our holiness. And this simply means we walk together. We journey together through the peaks and the valleys of life towards Christ's likeness. Which means that our character reflects the character of Jesus. God created us to be in community. It was his idea going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Life wasn't meant to be lived in isolation. Where loneliness will crush us. We're designed for community. And the final part of the rugged commitment is with great affection. The writer of Deuteronomy talked about affection. And Moses says this 
He says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And that Hebrew word for affection is hasak, H-A-S-A-Q, hasak, which means to take pleasure in and find delightful, to have a passion for. As God takes great pleasure in us and delights in us, we do the same for the people in our lives. So our rugged commitment to love means we are passionate about one another. That's what love looks like. Part of God's plan is that the church be a place of rugged commitment where we stand in the gap for one another. We journey the highs and lows of life with one another. And we do this as a part of our character formation into Christ's likeness to become holy. And we do it all with great affection because we delight in one another. We live in such a different place, gang. And our days and our weeks and our years can fill up so fast. And before you know it, you've missed out on the dimensions of the Christian life that matter most. The kinds of things that you take into eternity. And if you're not a part of a hope group or some form of intentional Christian community, then I have to ask, how are you making it through life? If you're not in a loving, Christian, caring community, who do you share your dreams, your victories, your shortcomings, your heartaches with? Who's walking with you through the peaks and the valleys of life? There's a wonderful saying about the function of the church. Perhaps you've heard it. But it goes, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. In fact, Faye Moore and I were talking about that very thing just last Sunday. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Just the way I am. A lot of people never get accepted like this. And sometimes they might even hang around the church. But what happens is they come to a service and they may sit through it and then they leave. But they never get into a little circle of people where they can belong and get accepted for who they are. Another practice that can only happen in relationship is something that Jesus' brother James talks about. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is such a powerful practice, this integration of confession and then prayer and then healing. They all go together, and it's so amazing. When Jesus was with somebody, he would very often put his finger on precisely that part of their life that they most wanted to hide. With Zacchaeus, he knew all about that little guy up in the tree and his tax collector greed. With the woman who was caught in adultery, who was about to be shamed, as our culture will so often do, particularly with women. Jesus knew all about that, and he loved her. And he proclaimed forgiveness and healing over her. With Peter, at the greatest failure of his life, and at the deepest layer of betrayal, when he denied Jesus, Jesus talked to him directly about that. Jesus, does this mean you're not coming over? Oh no, I'm coming over. 
When, people, when Jesus named people's deepest, darkest secrets and their biggest guilt and shame, it didn't end their relationship with him. It was just the opposite. Knowing their darkest secret and still loving them is what healed them. That's what made people go absolutely crazy about Jesus. We all try to hide because we want to be loved. But it's so self-defeating. Because, of course, as long as I'm successful at hiding a part of myself, I can never experience love for you, from you. Because inside I'm thinking, if you really knew me, you would never love me. And here's the irony, guys. Jesus came to save sinners. The lost, messed up, dysfunctional, broken, imperfect people like you and me. But there's something about churches when people gather on Sundays that we kind of become the church of the immaculate pretender. People wake up fighting with the kids, running late, screaming all the way in the minivan. But when you get to church, it's like, oh, we're doing great. You know, the family's great. The job is great. The kids are great. The marriage is great. The dog is great. That'll wreck a church. That'll kill a soul. Shame causes us to lead a double life. Sin is that way. And it just is. So how do we break free? Well, we could take some little steps forward when we gather as a church. At least don't lie. When we greet each other, can we at least all agree on that? At least don't lie. If it's been a bad week, just say, you know, it's been a rough week. Or I've got some growing to do. This one another, you know, confess your sins to one another can only fully happen with a trusted brother or sister in your circle. And I have a regular practice of calling a guy who I've been friends with for over 17 years. I've already talked about him today. His name's Joel. And we'll call each other on the phone several times a week if we're available. And part of that call is confessing our sins and our shortcomings and talking about our problems and fears and all the things that we're wrestling with. And we agree to pray for one another. And after we talk, I have a little bit more pep in my step because I'm not carrying the burdens all by myself. I really hope if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a fully disclosing friend who you confess your sins to and you pray for one another so that you can be healed. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Do that. Serve one another. When I think of serving others, I think of Disney World and how they serve their guests. If you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, you know this. If something's not right, they go out of their way to make it right. And Disney has cornered the market on customer service so well that they've created a program in which they teach customer service to other businesses and organizations. CEOs of companies believe that if their organization carried out customer service to their people the way that Disney does theirs, that the sky's the limit. And gang, if there's one thing that makes a church great... And Jesus taught about this often. It's not the building. It's not the budget. 
It's not the preaching, especially mine. It's not the music. It's not the programs. It's when the church is just a family of humble servants. How can I help? How can I volunteer? Can I pray for you? Can I get you something? Can I care for a little flock of people? Are there some students I could, I, that I could come alongside of? Are there some children I could build into spiritually? Then you, go, then you get to experience God working through you and your gifts. That's what makes a church family great. And you can serve in so many ways here at Hope. And all you have to do is mark that down on your Connect card. There's a space where you can mark down one of those areas that you'd like to serve in. And if you don't see something there, then write it on the card and say, hey, this is how I'm feeling called to serve. So you can mark that down on your Connect card and turn it in with your offering in just a moment. If you're thinking about serving, I guarantee you it will be great. Because when you get a group of people together who with a servant's heart, and they come together as the church, there is nothing like being a part of a family like that. Okay, last one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The idea here is not just to say hi. The idea here is to develop relationships of great affection and great attachment that actually get expressed and established in whatever cultural ways are important and appropriate. Let the other person know. When people come into that family, you can greet them with a holy kiss. And Paul loved this so much that he actually talked about this four times in four different letters. Now, some people are super comfortable with a holy kiss. I'm more of a holy butt slap kind of a guy. (laughs) And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that to be true. But there was a gal at our old church in Florida, Laura Davis. And Laura was a big fan of the holy kiss. Except I was not aware of that. And one morning before church, I was in the office area. I was making copies. And Laura greeted me with the holy kiss on the lips. Totally freaked me out. I was thinking, did I just have a one-second affair? But she meant nothing more than to show her affection in the context of Christian community. And while I was stunned for a moment, I knew her heart. And I knew that she was the kind of person who wanted me to know that I was someone of sacred worth. And if I were carrying around a burden that was too heavy to bear, she was someone I could count on to help. Gang, I promise you, the people around you are carrying burdens. They're carrying boulders that you don't know about. And we were not made to carry them by ourselves. You were not made to. So Jesus started this thing called the church. And you need it. And other people need you. If you don't belong yet, I hope you get into a hope group. There's a spot in your connect cards that lets us know that you'd like more information on hope groups. You just fill it out and drop it in the offering basket as it goes by in just a moment. It doesn't obligate you to join a hope group. Ed McMahon will not send you tons of junk mail, I promise. But it will be the first step to participating in our one another faith and a shared life together. Let us know that you'd like to learn more and we'll get the conversation going. 
with billions of people in the world, somebody should think of a system where nobody is lonely. And somebody did. His name was Jesus. And the cost was a cross. And the place is a church. And the foundation is love. Would you pray with me? I want to invite you to do this. You don't need to, but you may be sitting next to somebody who has carried or is carrying a burden right now. And this is family. And nobody should come to a family and be alone, feel alone, or leave alone. So if you just want to grab somebody's hand, or put an arm on their shoulder. Again, there's no pressure to do this if it's somebody you don't know. Just as God leads, if there's a way you want to express to someone, you are not alone. You're not carrying that boulder alone. You don't carry that guilt alone. You don't carry that hurt alone. I am for you. I am with you. I've got you. Oh God, each of us comes to that place where we cannot carry our lives by ourselves. We cannot see the truth about ourselves. We cannot see the reality of our sin or the need for repentance and forgiveness and healing. Only together. Father, we pray you would pour out your grace to do what we cannot and make this group a family, your family, Jesus' brothers and sisters. I ask God that anybody who is hurting today would not leave here alone, would not leave here carrying their burden by themselves. Would you make a way And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.